people really don't even know what the word meditation means. If you look it up, meditation means fixating your mind and senses on something. In reality, Lance, you and I are meditating all day long. We may, we may be meditating on, you played hockey before, hockey. I may be meditating on surfing. Other people may be meditating on pornography, food, money. Whatever your mind and senses are fixating on, you're meditating. It just doesn't mean it's spiritual because it means fixating your mind and senses on something. An example is, you've heard this before. Imagine somebody, they committed a crime and they were arrested. And the judge says their act was pre-meditated. It means they were meditating on murder or whatever the crime was before they did it. They were fixating the mind and senses on it. So you can even see in our own language that it's used not always in spiritual suggestive connotations or whatever. It's always put as whatever you're using your mind and senses on can be considered a meditation. So spiritual meditation or transcendental meditation, higher meditation is when you're putting your mind and senses on God. And that's what it says in Vedic literature. Life is going to give you challenges, struggles. It's going to force you to face your fears. Even though these may feel like your worst enemy, in truth, these are actually your greatest allies. My name is Lance Isios. Welcome to the University of Adversity. And we are back. We got a great show for you today, everybody. If you guys aren't subscribed to University of Adversity, make sure you do so. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Stay on top of these for the video version. If you do like to listen to this on audio or when you're working out or going to work or whatever you're doing, we're also available on all audio platforms. You guys, today's conversation was uh, a powerful one. We went about 90 minutes, but we covered all things um, around... Well, my my next guest, his name is Tamal Dodge, and I'll get into his, his intro here in just a minute, but... You know, we went into his story around how he got into the yoga world, how he got into jujitsu, which he is now a black belt from black belt in and his powerful story with his father and the adversity that he went through and what he overcame, what he taught to Maul and really just the power of yoga, the power of meditation, how it can help you and really um, some misconceptions of our world and religion, all things in between. So this was a great episode. I had a lot of fun and I highly recommend you guys following Tamal on social media, checking out his, um, all his information in the show notes, yogasalt.com, bodilive.com, all of that we'll get into, but, um, yeah, tune into this right till the end. You guys, this, this was a powerful episode and I really, really enjoyed it. So yeah, enjoy the episode. We'll see you on the other side. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to University of Adversity. Today's guest is a holistic entrepreneur, yoga teacher, studio owner, best-selling author of Yoga Plate, surfer, and Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. He is the founder of Yoga Salt, one of the most popular boutique studios in the U.S., and co-founder of Bodhi, an online studio for yoga, meditation, and fitness. Tamal Dodge, welcome to the show, brother. Lance, thank you for having me. I'm stoked to be here. I'm excited to dive in, man. You know, there's a lot of really cool things that you're up to. And, you know, our mutual friend Shanti connected us. 
And, you know, the beautiful thing about this world is, you know, not only in the podcasting world, but just personal growth in general, you get connected to a lot of great people doing, you know, pretty special things. And what I would love to just ask you, man, is, you know, you got quite the resume there. You got, you know, walk us through a little bit of your backstory, man. I don't know much about your backstory and I would love to hear like, how did you get into this world of yoga and martial arts? Um, well, I was kind of always raised around martial arts, um, as a kid. Um, it's really interesting. I grew up in Hawaii that's where I was born. And, uh, you have a lot of eclectic people that come and stay with you. We lived in this yoga ashram setting that my father ran. And that's why I have a Sanskrit name. That's all my siblings have Sanskrit names. And, um, it was like this very bohemian lifestyle the kids are homeschooled you grow up surfing you're meditating you're doing yoga but you have people from all over the world kind of collecting there and you know you have every kind of personality under the sun wandering through so uh for me i used to see certain people come in that were martial artists and uh, there was a guy that had come in that was a muay thai kickboxer guy but he also was doing brazilian jiu-jitsu but this is like really a long time ago this was early 90s so jiu-jitsu wasn't even that popular so it was really unusual to see anybody doing it in general but this guy was really really um uh, technical in his approach to just looking at martial arts and i remember my dad going oh this is like this is the real thing of how you're gonna learn how to do discipline and martial arts in general is how this guy's doing it and ah, mm. uh, it kind of stuck with me but i didn't get into it um, some of my brothers got into it a little bit. None of them really went beyond white belt. And I didn't um, start to see the benefits of it until later in my life. I did some boxing and some other little martial arts stuff through my life. But, um, you know, I'm a realist. I've I, been raised doing yoga. Um, but it wasn't until I was about, I don't know, in my mid-20s. And uh, my wife and I were out at dinner one night. And... Um, we had a babysitter for my son and my daughter and we pulled up around 10 o'clock at night to our house. We were living in LA at the time and our lights went over the front of our house. And there was a guy standing on the side of our house, looking in our window. And then our lights panned over and there was another guy on the other side of our house, looking in our window. And it's one of those like, Oh my God, what is happening? Kind of moments. Our children in the house, there's a babysitter and there's two strange men looking in the windows from the outside. Wow. And my wife is really upset. She's, she's like, oh, what are we going to do? So I just got out and I didn't know much martial arts. I knew crazy. <laughs> so I went out and I just started yelling and hollering and guys came out and um, one guy took off running immediately just down the block. And the other guy had to like pass through me to kind of get away. And I was like, what are you doing on my property? And I was really angry. And the guy's like, it's okay, man. It's okay. We're just checking out for him. Like you're on my property, like literally on the side of my house. And then he just brushed past me and took off running. So I asked my wife for a phone and I called 911. And I looked down the street and those guys ran, but then they hopped in our neighbor's yard. I was like, what is going on? What are these guys doing? And so I got a 911 and they tell me to give the guys location. So I run over to the house and I yell at the guys over the fence. I'm like, I know you're back there. I'm on the phone with the police. And the guys jump over the fence and they just take off running down towards Washington Boulevard. And so I'm chasing after these guys and they cut down the Washington Boulevard, 911 sending police cars. I'm like, what is this? 
And uh, these guys run past this bar and I don't know what they said to the people outside the bar, but it wasn't good because everyone out of the bar started running at me to try to block me. And I had to explain to them that, no, these guys were on my property. I'm on the phone with, I showed that it was 911 and everyone like backs away and make a long story short, the cops, I see this whole trail of police cars with their lights off and then they turn them up and grab the guys and throw them on the ground. And um, it was a real wake up call. The police, one guy was strung out on drugs. The other guy was drunk. One guy had a knife on him, but it wasn't a felony in California. That was just prowling. It was a misdemeanor. Really? Yeah. This is a misdemeanor. So I was like, that's wild. The craziest thing is a week ago, I saw one of the guys walking down the street. (laughs) I was like, that guy was in my property a week ago. That's wild. Yeah. And, um, one of the cops was like, yeah, if you didn't get there 10 minutes later or uh, 10 minutes, if you got there 10 minutes later, they might've been in your house. Um, which was like just a shocker to me. So I called one of my friends who was, uh, you know, in, uh, the whole world of self-defense. And I was like, what, what the heck should I do? And he was like, you should go do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I was like, all right, I'm going to go do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I remember some guys doing that when I was a kid. And so I hop into jiu-jitsu and it was like, I just got hooked. It became more than just self-defense. I just ended up loving it. And then, you know, two years ago, I got my black belt. <laughs> it took a long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, that's crazy, man. That's yeah. What a, what a wake up call though. <sighs> yeah. You know, I've never, my father wasn't a guy who taught this whole thing that you can talk your way out of anything. Cause my father grew up in a really realistic childhood there's a lot of feel like misconceptions in the yoga community where they think, Oh, well, you can just, you can just talk to anybody and you'll be able to talk your way out of any situation. Um, that wasn't the instance I told you wasn't the only crazy instance I've experienced. Um, I got attacked uh, in the park after I've been jujitsu in front of my son who was seven at the time by a guy who was on meth, who thought he could read my mind. And there's no way of reasoning with someone when they're unreasonable. <laughs> and they're completely strung out um and there was no reasoning so you know i'm not here to ever fight anyone or start anything but um i think the beauty of jujitsu is you don't have to physically hurt somebody if you don't really want to it's and jujitsu translates to the gentle art i mean it's one of those things where you learn a lot of control it's learning how to hold people down and pin them down so you don't have to punch them which is more barbaric in a lot of ways you don't have to choke them or do anything unnecessary if you don't have to you know you have more of control of the situation and so you know i don't not here to start fights or anything like yeah. that but yeah. if someone's definitely going to attack my family i definitely don't want to just sit there and go i hope for the best right um right. and uh you know i've had instances where i've had to use it and didn't have to arm anybody so it's uh it's also more than just this form of self-defense, it became a, you know, I love the title of your, your podcast, you know, university of adversity. When you get into jujitsu, you have to overcome so much adversity when you're there (laughs) because every day there's people there who are just going to grapple you, hold you down. And you got to go through this intense, um, ironing out of your ego too, because you see it all the time. You come in there and, you know, like a lot of, uh, people, especially in male culture is, you want to be the tough guy. You want to be the alpha. You want to be this. And as soon as you get in there, you realize you're a little fish in a gigantic pond. Mm. <laughs> and 
and you got to try to climb the ladder and learn how to grow, but you can't grow physically. Cause I'm actually not a big guy. I'm like 130 pounds, but you got to grow in your capacity of knowledge and also your capacity of being able to accept all the humble pie you're served every day on the map. Um, and you grow from there. It's amazing. Yeah. You either quit or you grow. That's how it's fed to you. Yeah. That's, it's interesting to me because, you know, I've heard a lot about jujitsu, obviously through Joe Rogan and yeah. a lot of people I follow talk about it. And it's interesting because that's what, that's what, that's what the, the underlying message is. It, it really checks your ego. And, yeah. you know, we need that sometimes, right? It's like when we're, it's, we need something that's going to bring us down a reality. And I love that you know, what a wake up call to get though. Like what a thing to know, like, you know, you're getting the whispers of, Hey, you got to learn, you got to learn this. Like you gotta. Yeah. And I've also, you know, heard how, how challenging it is and how long it takes to get your black belt. Yeah. It takes 10 years. That's like an extreme discipline, right? Like that's so my, I would, I would love to know how the two, I mean, because you know, yoga growing up with yoga you know, would have been probably something that wasn't the, wasn't the most common thing, right. Amongst your age group growing up, right. Like how, how old were you when you started yoga? Birth. Um, so kind of thrown into it. So interesting because man, first of all, so you grew up in Hawaii, right? Yeah. I was born there. We bounced back between Hawaii and uh, California a lot as so, a kid. My dad was an actor. Oh, wow. Okay. So learning that yoga, that, that, that skill to be still at a young age is fascinating to me because we don't like, I didn't learn that until, you know, I was, I mean, I'm 37 now. I don't think I learned stillness until I was in my early thirties when I started figuring out meditation. Yeah. So let's circle back to that for a second. What, how did that serve you through your life? developing such an important skill of mindfulness and paying attention to your, your body and really being connected with it at such a young age for, you know, kind of carving out your path in your life. Yeah. I think, you know, a lot of people have different people that influence them and they look up to them through their life. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a very uh, influential uh, father who was, always teaching us by example. He was very firm that we should always uh, follow people that do as they do. Don't follow anybody that says, do as I say, don't do as I do. He, he would always say, those are people that don't do the work. You know, They're always telling you what to do with your life, but they themselves aren't following the path. Um, and gosh, out of most people that I've ever known, he overcame so much adversity in his own life and changed his narrative and his dialogue, he very easily could have just been, you know, a crackhead on the street from how he was raised and to see how he really obtained peace and stillness in his own life. I felt like deeply impacted me in a way that inspired me to want to stick with it, you know, and I can say all my other siblings follow the same thing as me or try to do the same thing. But me, for me personally, it was a very influential uh, component to why I've stuck with it and why I want to share with other people what I've learned. And my father was uh, uh, given up for adoption in Japan um, right after World War II. My dad was like me, he's half Japanese, 
half Caucasian. And so his mother wanted to give him up because she was afraid he was just going to be ridiculed living in Japan, being half white, half Japanese. So she waited so long because she was so distraught about what she should be doing. She waited till he was three. He was adopted by a guy who was really high up in the military colonel here in the United States. So immediately he shipped to the United States, doesn't speak any English. He's raising this family with people he doesn't know. And the people didn't know how to raise children. The only way they knew how to raise him was to severely abuse him. Um, and he was beaten with fiberglass fishing poles, bamboo canes, belts, you name the list. I mean, just broken bones, the whole deal throughout his life. Um, not to mention the psychological abuse. Traumatizing, man. Traumatizing. Yeah, he was his his nannies would uh, hold him, take him outside and tell him that you see that airplane up there. That's your real mother and father up there. They're enjoying life without you. They're so, so happy to get rid of you. You have wow. to read. And just like oh, wow. wrecking him as a little kid. Um, and so, you know, he'd go to school and he was abused there because it was right after world war two, you know, Pearl Harbor had happened and everyone oh, was, man. he's getting the crap kicked out of him. And then he's moving every six months because in the military doesn't have any friends. It's like a recipe for a disaster. Like, he was given the perfect storm of destruction, you know, every excuse yeah. to say, this is why my life is crap. And this is why I should be angry at life. And this is why I shouldn't succeed. He was given all those excuses. Yeah, no doubt, man. That's wild. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, they got stationed in Hawaii when he was about 13 years old. And it was the first time he went to school where he wasn't the token ethnic kid and he wasn't getting abused. And, um, this is a multicultural and the sixties started to happen. And he started experimenting with psychedelic drugs and smoking weed and started to become this hippie kid living on a military base. Um, and, uh, you know, one night when he was 15 years old, he came home really late at night. He was drunk and he walked in and his, you know, adopted dad was sitting there in the dark and the colonel sitting there. And the guy was older too, when he adopted my dad. So at this point he's in his seventies and my dad's is 15 and they locked eyes. And my dad's adoptive father was like, you know, you're out late, way too late. You know what this means. But then they had this weird exchange where they stared and they looked at each other in the eyes and they both realized that my dad was bigger and stronger at this point. Wow. But then in my dad's heart, he felt this thing like you shouldn't hurt the old man. Like two wrongs don't make a right. And so then my dad just like, all right, let it happen. And the guy, because he saw in my dad's eyes a little bit of aggression, he just beat the crud out of my dad, broke his nose, trying to crack his orbital bone, just beating him up. And um, after my dad was a bloody mess, he stood up and said, that's the last time, man. Peace out. He ran out the door and ran away from home and moved in with a bunch of his older hippie friends. And... Uh, they all changed, helped him find a fake hippie name. They called him Magic Pat. And he's like running around the 60s with all these people and telling everyone he's 19 when he's really 15. And, you know, one night he, uh, he goes to this concert uh, and uh, it's for a band called Blind Faith, which is a really big uh, hippie 60s band. Had Eric Clapton in it and a bunch of other big famous people. But it was sold out. My dad didn't have a ticket. And he's hanging out outside and uh, he sees this dude outside with little curled shoes. It's the sixties. Everyone's acting wild. It looks like a little hobbit and the guy's meditating on beads. And my dad's like, what the heck is meditating? What the heck are those beads? He never saw anybody do anything like that. And um, 
it's all going to sound kind of crazy, but there's a point to it. No, this is great. I love this. This dude wanders up to him who's got one arm, who is a famous drug dealer in Hawaii, Hawaii named Pierre. And Pierre goes up to my dad and says, hey, I need you to hold something for me. And my dad's like, what? What do you want me to hold? And my dad didn't know this guy, but he knew of him. So he's already kind of intimidated. The guy goes, hold this paper bag for me. The cops are after him. My dad's like, I really don't want to hold anything for you if the cops are after you. And he shoves this paper bag into my dad and my dad sticks it in his shirt. And he says, that's 500 tabs of mescaline. I need you to hold it and I'll find you later. And my dad's like, you're going to find me. He's like, don't worry, I'll find you. And the guy takes off. Later, a cop comes up to him, dressed as a hippie. He's like, did that guy give you anything? My dad's like, no, no, man. The guy didn't give me anything. The cop wanders off. My dad's just standing outside. Well, if I'm holding this stuff, I might as well take two of these things. So my dad takes two mescaline. You're only supposed to take one. And he's standing outside. And then the doors to the concert open up. And all the hippies that don't have tickets start rushing the door. And all the cops and security are throwing all the hippies on the ground. And they're all getting slammed to the floor. And my dad's like, I don't have a ticket. I don't want to get slammed on the ground. Then he notices every hippie with a ticket forms a long line. And they're just walking in. Everyone's so distracted. They're not even ripping tickets. They're just walking in. So my dad's like, I'm going to go into the line and pretend I have a ticket. Goes single file and walks right in. He sits down in the front row. And as he's sitting there, that dude that he saw chanting on beads sits right next to him. And my dad's like, oh, hey, man, I'm Magic Pat. Uh, I saw you meditating on those beads. What's your deal? And the guy's like, oh, my, na my name's Gildor. The guy's like really working the Hobbit thing. And the guy's like, I'm Gildor. And my spiritual teacher tells me to chant a different name of God on each bead. He tells me to chant Ram on one, Buddha on the other. My dad's like, wow, that's really cool. I've never heard of anything like that. And the guy goes, well, here, you should read his book. And he pulls out a little book. It's called Simple Meditations. My dad opens it up, but when he opens it up, the mescaline surges through his system and the front page just says, you're not your body. But because the mescaline is so strong, the page speaks to him instead of my dad reading it. And it says, you're not your body. So my dad's like, oh, shit. Wow. And then the song kicks on from the band. And the first song that Blind Faith sings is come down off your throne and leave your body alone. And my dad's like, it's in the song and it's in the book. Shit. And he gets up and he becomes that freak out case. He's running in the crowd. He's trying to shake people. It's in the song. It's in the book. He loses track of that Gilder guy. That guy leaves. And my dad goes home that night and he sits down with one of his good friends. And he's like, dude, I had the craziest night. You need to read this book. But first, you need to take two of these. <laughs> he gives his friend oh, wow. two of them. His friend lets it surge through his system. He's like, now read the page. And it says, you're not your body. So the guy's like, oh, shit. <clears throat> so they spend the whole night sitting across from each other, just shooting energy balls, <laughs> playing energy ball catch because they're so high on this mescaline, talking about they got to meet the author of this book. So they flip open the book at the back page. It says, this guy, uh, Sita, it says, he'll be at the, Church of the Crossroads, the last Sunday of every month. And the Church of the Crossroads still is in Oahu. It's like a hippie little hangout coffee shop bookstore place. And it says, it'll be the last Sunday of every month. So they show up. And when they're there, my dad sees that little hippie dude, Gildor. He's like, hey, Gildor, remember me? It's me, Magic Pat. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, I remember you. I'm the guy freaked out. 
And my dad's like, how am I going to know who Sita is? And Gildar's like, oh, you're going to know. And my dad was like, if you ever saw anybody that looked like Jesus, it was Sita. He looked like he weighed 90 pounds, glowed, had a big beard, a long white t-shirt, long matted hair. And he walked in and my dad's like, okay, that's the guy. So my dad sits down, listens to this philosophy talk that he gives. And at the end of the lecture, my dad goes up to him and says, hey, um, I'd really like to learn more about this meditation stuff. Where can I learn more about it? And Siddha says, you can move to my ashram in Kauai, sell all your shit, get on a ferry and come see me. Here's the directions of how to get there. So my dad and his friends sell all their junk, take a ferry, go to, Hawaii, go to Kauai, they hitchhike, they go to the top of this hill. They hop out of a flatbed truck and they come to this sign outside of a clearing of a forest and says, welcome to the Haiku Meditation Center. There'll be no drugs of any kind, no eating of meat, fish, or eggs, no illicit sex life, no gambling. And my dad's like, oh my God, I do all of these things. I don't know if I can do this. And he turns over to his friend to tell him he doesn't, he's not sure he can actually follow through. And his friend has already hopped in the truck and is already going down the hill and says, man, too heavy for me, bro, but it's your journey. Good luck. And, uh, you know, make a long story short, my dad hiked through that forest, went into that ashram and never became the same person. He ended up becoming a monk with Siddha and traveling all over the world through India, Thailand, Malaysia, just at age 15. Um, wow. Nothing but a begging bowl and robes and he was like, it wasn't until he had absolutely no material possessions. He's there sitting with a monk as a monk with a begging bowl and robes living on the streets of India. Materially destitute had been through the shithole of abuse and anger and frustration and everything else that he had experienced. But now that he was at this point where he had been given this spiritual wisdom and meditation and reflecting and yoga, he's the happiest he'd ever been in his life. And the craziest thing is people think people say that all the time. Oh, I got fixed or whatever. Um, my dad had such deep spiritual experiences. And when he was in his forties, he was given a message that his birth mother wanted to meet him. And he was like, I want to meet her. Sounds great. I'll go to Japan. So my dad flies to Japan. He comes out of the airport and he sees this old Japanese woman bawling, crying. And he goes up to her and he hugs her. And she's crying even harder. And he grabs her and he looks her in the face and he says, I just want to thank you for everything you did for me. And she's so confused. She says, what are you talking about? I put you up for adoption at three and I heard you're horrendously abused on all levels. You had all this terrible, tragic stuff happen to you. Why are you thanking me? And he said, because if it wasn't you that put me in the worst circumstance in my life, I never would have questioned who am I? What is my purpose? Why do I exist? Why are we all here? Why is there pain? Why is there suffering? If you didn't put me in a horrible material circumstance, I never would have found the meaning of life. Because you made me suffer so bad, I am now so happy. Wow. Is he still around? No, he passed away when I was a teenager. That's another cosmic story too um i'm willing to share it if you want me to share it at some point <laughs> yeah i mean wow man 
so did you, did he, what was your relationship like with him? You know, after him going through such, such a challenging life and then him going through such a awakening, it's, what was he like as a dad? How did he rate, oh. like, what was that relationship like? We were super close. And I think he, I was as close to him as you could be with a father. He had this vow that because he was abused so terribly, he would never lay a finger on his kids, take a hair out of their head with malice. So he was this extremely loving guy, like extremely loving and caring and gentle, um, which is also inspiring because it means you can always change your dialogue. Everyone always says, I did this because this happened to me. Um, but that's also doesn't mean that's the way it should be. You know, there's a guy who went through the worst of the worst and he very easily could have been like the most abusive father and alcoholic done all these things, but change the dialogue. Um, he obviously attributed it to yoga and meditation and all the, the incredible uh, spiritual work that he was given um, through that process. Um, but, um, at the end of the day, my relationship with him was extremely close. Um, you know, he did all the dad things that you wanted a dad to do. He was always playing with you, giving you one-on-one -on -one time, uh, answering your questions, but he also gave us the more, uh, spiritual undertones to everything. He always made sure that we understood that. Uh, your spiritual life and your relationship with God should always be at the center. You know, a lot of people don't look at yoga in that way. They look at yoga with this, um, um, you know, pseudo spiritual outlook, this kind of um, makeshift version of it. And it's a little frustrating. Like you mean the kind of like the, the going to the gym yoga kind of thing. Like it's more of like this, like vanity thing because like yoga compared to like what real yoga is like you know talk first of yeah like sorry i don't want to interrupt you there i just want to like give people the, the perspective of what you mean by that because what came to me was like what you see when you go to like a gym like equinox or something you see yoga but then you know yeah. you practice with like kundalini yoga and they're called the same but they're, they're completely different right or what you practice so maybe yeah. explain what that means exactly for people hundred percent. And, you know, I think this is the, it's a frustrating thing that, um, you know, in Western culture in general, a lot of people who turn to yoga are burnt out on religion. So they want to delete or edit out anything that has, uh, what they feel personally to be religious, suggestive information or mm. connotations. And so what they end up doing is they end up editing and deleting very specific things, whether that's in a yoga class at a gym, a studio, or in a yoga teacher training, a perfect example is now um, a lot of yoga teacher trainings don't speak about reincarnation or karma. Um, most, uh, well, not most, but a lot of translations of like the Bhagavad Gita, which is like a core literature of yoga. Um, a lot of the translations stop at chapter two when it's 18 chapters long. Mm. <laughs> Just shows you how much editing is going on because there is much talk of God and the existence of God um, with a capital G. And so people, that's why in the yoga community, everyone wants to say the word, the universe. Oh, it's the universe. We're all just the universe, the universe of this. And, um, you know, I'm not here to shove any beliefs down anyone's throats or try to change people's things. But I also don't think that uh, we should change the meanings of ancient texts just because it personally makes us uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Like one of the main things my father taught me as a kid was if 
you're always comfortable, you're never progressing. That was like a slogan with him. People want to coast through life. And then they're like, oh, I just want to stay, keep it easy, keep it easy, you know? Just like, it's so much easier to sit on the couch and eat potato chips all day long and watch movies. doesn't mean it's good for you, right? It's much harder to go to the gym, put yourself through some physical adversity, yeah. <laughs> but you're going to have way more benefit from it. You're making yourself physically uncomfortable and you get physical benefits from that discomfort. He's like the same thing with spirituality. If you're constantly comfortable, you're really not diving deep. You're not going beyond the layers. Like the actual literal translation of yoga means to yoke. It comes from like the idea of joining um, a cart with a bull to yoke a bull with something. It comes to yoke or unite with God. Um, and that's the process of yoga, the poses, the breath work, all that stuff um, was there to open your body and clear your mind. So you could sit in meditation for long periods of time and not have to meditate on a stiff back, a kink in your neck, you know, congestion in your thought process, but to be able to, you know, focus on relinking or connecting. Um, there's a great book called small is beautiful by EF Schumacher. He's a British economist this is way back when this is like years and years and years, and years ago. He was sent to this small town in Asia to try to make them uh, more industrialized and make more money and all these different things. And when he got to this small village in Asia, they were materially poor, but he realized they had something different that was going on. The whole village was surrounded around a temple and their whole livelihood is about their spiritual practices. And he stayed there for a very long time with these people. And when he went back to England, everyone's like, did you educate those people and make them civilized and all this crap? And he said, I didn't change a thing. They changed me. He's like, I had it all wrong. He's like, I thought that it was all about how much money I had, how big my car, how big my house was, how many cars I had. He goes, but it wasn't this. He goes, like, these people were so happy. And it wasn't because they had so much material wealth. It was about how much spiritual wealth they had that was keeping them thriving. And he wrote a book called Small is Beautiful. That's about his experience there. Mm. Um, so my father was one of those people that emphasized that with us as a kid, that no matter where you are, what you're going through, you always have to make sure that's at the core of the center of your being. Um, and if you make that the kind of highlight or spotlight of what's going on, you'll find what you're looking for and you'll have that um, contentment, that Santosha that everyone's looking for. So what we've done these days is we've taken the things that we want and we've eliminated the things that make people uncomfortable within the language of yoga and text, right? So it's, and is that, that's what you're, you're getting at, right? You just want to kind totally. of reiterate for everybody. So it's like, they've taken like this glamorous side of it where it's people are in their Lululemon stuff doing their yoga, which is fine. There's a place yeah. for that. There's fine. Yeah. Like, I mean, it's, it's a, there's, there's a certain thing that there's a, there's, there's a time and place for that, which is great. But you know, there's, this is where I learned a lot about the difference between yoga and, you know, I, I did, I went and did a men's retreat with uh, Guru Singh and Guru Ganesh uh, within uh, the Kundalini community. And I had no idea what I was doing, what, what it was. I, prior, I went to a retreat and, you know, my, my good friend and doctor back home, he's a naturopath. He's like, come to a yoga retreat in Cabo. 
And I said, okay, yoga, cool. Like combo. <laughs> it wasn't what I thought. We we're doing all these chants and breath and all this stuff. And then I realized I was like, wow, that is a lot different. And then I understood that. And then I, I, I wanted to learn more about it, but it's, it's, it was very challenging for me. And I never really kept following that path, but I, I just saw the difference is, is to like, you know, the intention and around breath and around chanting. And I know there's different yogas, but I just really noticed the difference. And some people get really uncomfortable because you're right. Like they start to, because religion has given them such a weird taste in their mouth. It's like, it clouds the thing, the other stuff that is actually not the same. It's completely different, but because the words and because of the feeling around religion has given everybody this weird, this weird feeling, it's like they want to cancel out parts of that. And it brings me into my next, my next question here around that is what would you say is the difference? What would you say is the difference between spirituality versus religion? Like how, how are they different and how are they similar? Maybe some clarity for people. Cause I know there's, there's so many people get caught up in, in, in that. And even myself on my spiritual path, you know, like there's certain things that I've noticed that are very similar. There's a lot of good in religion, the Bible, there's a lot of the teachings and messages is it's all, it's all for love. Like there's a lot, but then there's a lot of like weird stuff that like unconditional love that contradicts what it actually is. So maybe walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, you're putting uh, forth a lot of great points and I think there is a time and a place for, um, you know, people, athletic pursuits. I think it's fine. I, I teach, I teach physical yoga. I teach vinyasa. Um, and I'm all for, you know, doing vinyasa yoga, power yoga, all these different types of yoga out there. And I think it's great. Um, my whole thing about it was when you start to dive into the spiritual aspects, um, we change things to make ourselves comfortable, mostly in those regards when it comes yeah. to yoga. Um, for instance, I took a yoga class and the teacher at the end of class said, we're going to own and own means yes. So we're going to say yes in the form of own. And they, we owned. And I was like, what the, so we owned. And I went up to her at the end and I said, where did you learn this translation of Om? Because in all Shastra, which is all Vedic literature, it says that Om translates to the manifestation of God in the form of sound vibration. And she goes, if I say the word God, none of my students will come back. So I have to change the meaning. Oh, wow. And you know, that just says it all. I was like, but aren't we here to get uncomfortable a little bit? You know, are we supposed mm -hmm. to be challenged? Yeah. Um, isn't that the point of everything? You know, if we're constantly making everyone feel comfortable in life, they'll never be prepared for those moments that make them uncomfortable. You know, you, it's like your kids, you can try to shelter your kids as much as you can, but they're going to have to become an adult at some point and move out of the house and then face the world. Um, when it comes to religion and spirituality, um, you know, I think the thing that people have the most difficulty with is like a lot of the organized religion things that are out there. Um, and, you know, I, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. I'm kind of uh, controversial in regards to philosophy and things like that in my teacher training, because I say the word God a lot and I refer to other scriptures. I actually talk about the Bible in my yoga teacher trainings. I talk about the Quran. I reference so many other scriptures to show common truths versus yeah. uh, differences. You know, that's like Gandhi, 
right? Definitely. One of, the re- one of the reasons he was assassinated is he was like speaking to people of, that were Hindus, Christians, and Muslims in India and uniting them together saying, look, guys, we got way more in common than we do that's different. It's love. Here's, you know, yeah. it's about love. You know? Here's something from the Bible. Here's something from the Bhagavad Gita. And here's something for the Quran. And let's get together and let's form a big family, basically, right? Yeah. And uh, so that's what I kind of do at the teacher trainings. Actually, in a very ancient scripture, it's called the Srimad Bhagavatam. Uh, there's a quote that I read. Uh, right in the very beginning of the teacher training. And it says, by this process of yoga or any other true process, one can attain enlightenment. It doesn't say by this process of yoga, this is the only way, there's no other way you can attain enlightenment. This is it. Everyone else is fake. It says by this process or any other true process, you know, somebody can attain enlightenment. So I try to show that even in yoga, it's non-denominational, non-sectarian, this whole thing of I've only got the God, you don't got the God, I've got the real thing. It, it just pins everyone against each other and creates more segregation and separation. Um, you know, like you're saying, a lot of the things that are spoken about are all the same. Love God, love your neighbor, love yourself, all these different things. But then we get so caught up with if you haven't surrendered to this organization or that organization or this thing or that thing, you're in trouble, you know, um, and uh that's where a lot of people get bad taste in their mouths. My whole thing is there's so much benefit to the Vedic and yogic literatures that if you don't follow the recipe, you're not going to get the results. Like, I don't know if you cook much. I love to cook. Obviously I have a cookbook to cook and baking out of all types of cooking is the most temperamental. You cannot, if you mess it up, you mess it up. You know, it's like you can miss a little bit of something in a stir fry or whatever and throw salt in it later and it'll spruce it up or whatever. But you can't, if you forget baking powder and you bake the cake, you can't go put baking powder back in the cake after it's been baked. Mm. It's just a disaster. In yoga, it's like if you change the recipe, you're not going to come out with the same product. They talk about that actually in Vedic literature. It says if you don't follow this, how it's spoken, you're not going to understand it fully. And, you know, my whole thing when it comes to conveying yoga and yoga ideas is that I don't want it to be uh, put forth as an encouragement for armchair philosophy. Everyone likes to sit at like some vegan restaurant or a coffee shop and talk about, oh, I read the Bhagavad Gita, I read the Tao Ching, I read the Bada Baba, I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, but there's no application happening there. There's a, there's a really cool um, uh, analogy by a guy named Frank Jackson. It's called Mary's Room. Have you heard of it before? No. no. It's super cool. So uh, Frank Jackson puts forth this little allegory where he says, imagine there's a woman, her name is Mary. Mary is a color expert. She knows everything there is to know about color. She has read every book about how the retina perceives color, how your brain processes it. She is a color expert, but Mary herself has only lived in a black and white room wearing black and white clothes, only reading black and white books. And she herself has never seen color. One day, Mary is typing on her computer, her black and white computer, and there's a glitch on the screen and a red apple appears and she sees color for the first time. Does Mary's understanding of color change or does it stay the same? And most people would say it has to have grown. Mm -hmm. 
because there's a difference between intellectual coffee shop armchair philosophy, right? Intellectual mm-hmm. understanding and experiential knowledge. So like in your, when you're a kid, you ask somebody, what's it like to fall in love? And they say, oh, it feels all warm and fuzzy in your heart, dot, dot, dot. And then you're a teenager and you fall in love in that first high school love where it's like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And you're like, oh my God, this is way more intense than they said it was going to be. Mm-hmm. You're a kid. What is it like to have a broken heart? Well, it's really painful. You cry. And then yeah. you get your heart broken. You're like, oh my God, this is horrible. This is way more. Your understanding yeah. of what love and heartbreak is grows because of the experience, not just your understanding. Not just from watching a movie. Totally. It's like when, when someone says they talk about traveling or whatever, it's, it's, you, it's a completely different scenario than if you, if you watch a movie and you see Italy, you know, people in Italy, it's a lot different than when you're in Italy and you're experiencing the culture and the feeling. It's a completely different world. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is how different things are. And a lot of people live in fear and don't do things because they think they've seen it. But when they go there and they realize what's true, it's a whole, they give a whole different perspective on it. Exactly. And that's what happens when we change the teachings or we just, instead of changing the teaching, we just talk about it. We don't actually apply what they're asking you to apply. You're that person who never took the trip to Italy. You're that yeah. person who never went to Hawaii. You yeah. think, you know, but you don't really know until you get off the plane in Hawaii and you realize it smells like papayas and plumerias <laughs> everywhere. And there's that's this amazing. certain scent and you're like, what is happening here? The feeling, the vibe, the sensations, everything's different. It's like, imagine, I mean, I grew up surfing. So imagine a guy, let's call him Rick. Rick has read every book there is on surfing, watched every surf video under the sun, but he himself has never been in the ocean. After 10 years of hanging out at surf shops, learning the lingo, bro, what's up? Shredding the gnar. He decides he's going to go surf 12 foot swell. We give him a five foot six little short, short board, you know, quad fin, send him out there. Will Rick be able to catch a wave, do Gorkin flips and rodeo clowns and aerial maneuvers. Hell no. <laughs> he might die actually <laughs> yeah. because he has no experiential knowledge. You can read all you want, but unless you're going out there and you're actually doing it and practicing, you will never ever um, be proficient at it. That's mm. so it's, that's great advice, man. If, if somebody is kind of, toying with the idea of meditation in that world, you know, because they want to get some sort of instant gratification. How can you explain to them what happens to you when you do commit to meditation and yoga and to these practices, you know, how, what can they expect and maybe how can they get into it in a way that is easy for them to maybe not overwhelmed, but they kind of, yeah, I guess, what can they expect? What can, what happens from this on like, you know, a level of like, yeah, I'll let you explain that. I can't even articulate the words. You're doing great. I think that um, people should understand there's not just one type of meditation out there. Like a lot of people, they go meditation. They immediately think of some guy sitting in a forced area in like a lotus position and with their eyes closed and like striking some cool hand gesture or mudra. And they're like, oh, that's meditation. And there's awesome benefit to sitting silently, controlling your breath, calms your mind, gets you in a peaceful zone. Um, There's different types of meditation recommended in the yoga system according to the time, place, and circumstance. It's very key uh, words that are called kala and patra, which mean time and place. 
uh, actually the silent meditation of just sitting quietly and, you know, trying to slow your thoughts down and uh, practice this silent meditation is considered meant for a different time period in the earth. Really? Yeah. When was that? When? So, because that's okay. The reason I stop you there is because that's what I I always feel. That's what I do. That's what right. I feel I get the most out of. But I'm curious as to like why that is. Then like what? It doesn't mean you can't get some benefit from it, and you'll get some things out of it. But they're talking about maximum benefits. Um, um, it's going to sound pretty wild. Oh, but in great. previous, let's go into some psychedelic stuff together. You ready, Lance? Yeah, um, we talk about a lot of that on here. Yeah. So. In the yoga system, there are things called yugas or periods of periods of time in the earth. And they're like seasons. There's four of them, just like winter, spring, summer, and fall, but they're not short. They don't last for months. These last for hundreds of thousands of years. And each yuga, you're recommended a specific type of meditation according to the time and the place. Hmm. Um, right now, we're in a season called Kali Yuga, which is the winter of the earth. Um, People have short attention spans. For instance, there was a study recently done where they found that the modern human being, their attention span is two seconds shorter than a goldfish. Wow. So that's the modern man right now, which I think is ironic because we call ourselves homo sapiens, which means wise man, <laughs> but our attention spans two seconds shorter than a goldfish. That's wild. Um, so, um, because this is the winter of the earth, it's called Kali Yuga. We have shorter attention spans and we have shorter lifespans. In the previous yugas, people live a lot longer. And there's actually a lot of correlation with the Vedas as they do in the Bible. Like if people are familiar with the Bible, they'll remember that when Noah was around, it says he lives almost a thousand years old and it confuses the crap out of everybody. Like people in different parts of the Old Testament live super long. Um, but in the Vedas, they talk about in previous yugas, people live longer had longer attention spans, lifespans. And so they could sit for long periods of time in meditation. We're talking about the recommended pro recommendation for silent meditation is 18 to 24 hours of seated meditation. And most of us don't have that time, 18, 24 hours. Like what? I have to sit in meditation that long? Not that you won't get awesome benefits from five, 10 minutes here. You won't see, you're definitely going to see good stuff. But because um, we're in the winter of the earth, the recommended process for attaining enlightenment is mantra meditation. Man means mind and tra means that which frees you from. So the word mantra means that which frees you from your mind. Um, believe it or not, but guys like Gandhi uh, understood that from reading Vedic literature. Gandhi read the Bhagavad Gita every day. He says it was like his mother and he referenced his mother every single day for guidance. Uh, the reason we call Gandhi Mahatma Gandhi um, is actually very connected to his understanding of why we do mantra meditation in this age. Um, Mahatma, Maha means great and Atma means soul. So they were calling him great soul, Mahatma Gandhi, but he didn't like it. He would actually get upset. He'd go, you guys cannot call me a great soul. And everyone was like, why you are liberating India. You're doing so many great things. You're uniting people. Oh, da, da. He's like, no, 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 no. He's like in Vedic literature, it says that how someone dies, what they're thinking at the time of death will determine if they're a great soul. And he said, if at the time of his assassination, if he doesn't raise his hand and forgive his assassin and die with the names of God on his lips, 
you cannot call him a great soul. So everyone immediately stopped calling him Mahatma Gandhi. They called him Gandhiji. And then lo and behold, years and years later, he gets shot. He falls on his back. He raises his hand. He forgives the guy. And he says, Ram, 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 Ram. And he dies. So that's why we call him Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi understood from the Bhagavad Gita that it says, whatever you think of at the time of death will determine where you go in your next life. So like I've spent a lot of time in ICU units and I've seen guys who are dying of heart disease that are saying, I just want a goddamn hamburger. Give me a damn hamburger because their muscle memory, their whole life is just eat the hamburger, eat this junk food, eat these things that are bad. I've seen guys dying of cancer in the ICU ward saying, give me a fucking cigarette. I just want a fucking cigarette because their muscle memory is on that's their mantra. My mantra is suck in the nicotine, blow the nicotine in and out. That's my mantra. And Gandhi understood from the Vedas that if you chant mantra, that you develop a specific spiritual muscle memory. And so he would chant Ram anytime he wasn't in the conversation, he would sit on his beads. That's why we, we have mala beads. Mala beads, people wear them in yoga and people don't even know why we use them. They're like, it goes with my Lulu outfit. I got a purple one for my red pants, da, da, da but you're really supposed to use them as a tool. So Gandhi would chant on his mala beads. It's called japa, which means repetition. Every step he took when he'd go on long walks, he'd say, Ram, Ram. People said when they heard him sleeping, they could hear him saying, Ram, 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 as he went to sleep. So it was like a given at the moment of when he's going to leave. He was like, I've been preparing this my whole life. <laughs> so Ram, Ram means? Ram is the name of God that means one who gives happiness to the soul. And you don't have to just chant Ram in the Vedas and say you can chant any name of God. Um, you know, like my dad met that guy Gilder. He was chanting different names of God on beads. Um, so, you know, Japa meditation is really important. Om breathing is really great. Um, there's also things called kirtan where it's singing. It's very related to the things that you see in like Catholic churches where people sing back and forth or in any spiritual tradition, people are singing God's names. Um, all that's there in Vedic literature because of the time and place we're living in, this Kala and Patra, time and place. And people go, how do you know we're in Kali Yuga, Tamal? Like you're saying it's Kali Yuga and we're supposed to do this. How do you know it's not a previous Yuga? Well, they say we're supposed to live only 100 years or less in Kali Yuga. It's, Kali Yuga means the age of chaos, quarrel, and confusion. I don't know about you, but I felt like 2020 was... Uh, just a little right. bit, yeah. A little bit of chaos, quarrel, and confusion. Um, and that there's wars going on all the time. Nobody under, nobody's understanding each other. Even if both people are putting, putting forth different points, one person makes sense, they're not going to hear them. Um, so there's a lot of things that show you that, not to mention in the Vedic literature, it talks about this is the time that's coming up. This is happening. It's going to be Kali Yuga. Um, and because we have short attention spans, short lifespans, it's recommended because it's easier to do. It's like a simpler way. The, the less time we have, the less attention span we have, the easier the process is. And it engages your senses, your sense of speech, your sense of hearing. The more senses are engaged, the more you're going to be focused on it. Like people really don't even know what the word meditation means. If you look it up, meditation means fixating your mind and senses on something. In reality, Lance, you and I are meditating all day long. We may, we may be meditating on, you played hockey before, hockey. I may be meditating on surfing. Other people may be meditating on pornography, food, money. Whatever your mind and senses are fixating on, you're meditating. 
It just doesn't mean it's spiritual because it means fixating your mind and senses on something. An example is you've heard this before. Imagine somebody, they committed a crime and they were arrested. And the judge says their act was pre meditated. It means they were meditating on murder or whatever the crime was before they did it. They were fixating the mind and senses on it. So you can even see in our own language that it's used not always in spiritual suggestive connotations or whatever. It's always put as whatever you're using your mind and senses on can be considered a meditation. So spiritual meditation or transcendental meditation, higher meditation is when you're putting your mind and senses on God. And that's what it says in Vedic literature. Um, it's like, how do I put my mind and senses on something that's going to elevate my heart, my mind, what's going to take me to that next step. Um, so I always encourage people like benefits that you're going to get through meditation. It can start with feeling really happy, really content, very equipoise, balanced in your own life, but eventually it purifies you and you get clear as you do it. And the more you get purified, the more you want to do it, the more you want to do it, the more you're going to be having these breakthroughs. Um, it's like my own dad, I'll try to keep it short, but, um, I was about 17, 18 years old, somewhere around there. He was going to teach a meditation workshop in Northern California. And we hop in a car and we drive up the coast and he says, let's stop the car. And he hops out and we're like 30 minutes out of San Francisco. My dad is standing on the side of the road. He's rubbing his chest. Everyone hops out of the car. We're like, what's going on, dad? He's like, just give me one second. I'm, I'm having a heart attack right now. And we're like, what? We all hop in the car. But my dad was just like that, you know, just even keeled. Five minutes pass by. He walks back in the car. He goes, all right, let's go to the hospital. And we're like, you sure you had a heart attack? He's like, yep. So we go to San Francisco General Hospital. My dad walks in, goes to the front desk and says, um, 30 minutes ago, I had a heart attack. I would like to check myself in. And they're like, you sure you had a heart attack? Because he was just chill. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah. It felt like an elephant was sitting on my chest. They're like, okay. So they bring him in. They start running tests. He's hooked up to all this stuff. The doctor comes in and says, you didn't have a heart attack. You're fine. You're good to go. We're going to let you out soon. And then my dad looks at all of us kids and he's like, no, I had a heart attack. I'm going to have several more while I'm in this hospital and I'm going to die in this hospital. He just knew it. He saw it before it happened. Hmm. And all of us kids are like, oh, crying. We're all super emotional. We all love him. And the doctor's like, I don't know why he's saying this. It's not, he didn't have a heart attack. He's going to be fine, kids. I'm going to go get his papers. We're going to release him. And the doctor leaves. And my dad starts to quote the Bhagavad Gita to us. He says, the wise neither lament for the living nor for the dead. And we're like, the wise neither lament for the living nor for the dead. Because the wise understand that we're not our bodies. We're a soul that gives this body life. So if we're in a body, we're still alive. If the body is dead, the soul is still on still living on. So the wise understand there's no death of the soul. That's what he's telling us. He goes, I want you to see this guys with spiritual eyes. It's going to be really hard for you, but I want you to see it with spiritual eyes while I go through this. So we're all trying to like get it together. And then while the doctor's away, he has another heart attack. All these things are going off in the hospital. All the nurses come in. They're like, Oh my God, he really did have a heart attack before. And his heart attack, heart attack passes. They rush him up to the ICU. And we're all standing next to him in the ICU unit. 
And they tell him he can't have any water or food in case he needs surgery. They're going to keep him there. Meanwhile, my dad tells the, the doctors, no matter what happens, I don't want any drugs. They're like, not even for the pain. He has nothing. I want to leave. I want to be completely cognizant as I go through this process. And they're like, sir, you're not going to die. You're in a hospital. You're in the safest place it's going to be right now. And he just had like this look like, oh no, it's going down. <laughs> and so we're sitting there and he's thirsty. So we ask if we can give him some water. They say, no, you can give him ice chips. So we're standing on the left of the left of him, giving him ice chips and he's eating these ice chips. And this nurse comes in and she shoved this huge syringe in his right arm. And then my dad just starts laughing super hard. And the nurse goes, what's the matter? And he says, nothing. He's like, it's just kind of comical that this is the duality of the material world. On the left, I'm fed delicious ice chips. It's like pleasure. And on the right, I'm stabbed with a needle. It's pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain, pleasure, pain. That's the world here. And she's like, all right, whatever, dude. <laughs> she leaves. Later that night, he has a massive heart attack and it creates an aortic dissection, which his heart splits in half. Everyone dies instantly when this happens. The doctor's waiting for him to die. Five minutes go by, 10, 15, 20, half an hour goes by and he's not dead. Both halves of his heart are beating. They're like, this doesn't make any sense. He's having trouble breathing, so they intubate him. They put this huge tube down his throat and they tie his arms down. And they're like, let's see how cognizant. And they ask him so many questions and he answers by squeezing. Two squeezes for this, three squeezes for that. And he's fully cognizant. They're like, well, he fully understands everything. And we keep asking, can you untie his hands? And they're like, no, we can't untie his hands because it's so painful having that in, not to mention he's on no pain meds. So it's like someone took a knife and cut his heart in half and people would just die from the pain. But for some reason, he's still alive. Wow. And they're like, well, we'll untie him. But if he pulls the tube out, just know we have to put the tube back in. And we're like, untie him. So they untie him and my dad doesn't pull it out. He just shakes his hands off, gives us a thumbs up. Then he starts to snap his hands, his right hand, because the other hand, he can't really move anymore. He's snapping his right hand. And we're like, what does he want? We can't figure it out for two hours. What does he want? Finally, my mom goes, I know. And she runs out of the room and comes back with some mala beads. She hands him beads and he gives her a smile and raises his hand in the air. And he starts to meditate on his beads one by one. My dad understood that if he was going to go out, he's going to go out like Gandhi did, deep in mantra meditation. So when I say in the beginning stages of meditation, you may feel good, balanced, equipoised, but then it starts to take a hold of your life and you start to have a deeper perspective, what your meaning is, what you should do, how you should operate, and most importantly, how you should die. That's the thing no one talks about. It's like if I told someone they have a math test on Monday, they're going to study the shit out of math before that test because they know it's going to happen. But death is 100% guaranteed for all of us, but nobody prepares for it. It's like, I'm telling you, there's this huge test waiting for you and then nobody tries to do anything for it. They're like, I'll wing it. We'll see, hope for the best, play it loose, right? So my dad's like, all right, I'm going to meditate. And so he meditated on his beads. He did this almost 24 hours a day for 18 more days in the hospital with his heart split in half. Wow. And I would just, we'd all take shifts with him. I would sit there at night meditating on my beads next to him. I'd be chanting and chanting. 
And then a couple days before he passed away, the doctors walk in and they go, we want to ask you some questions. My dad's there. They puts his beads down. They hold his hand. They go, we're going to attempt a surgery that has never been done before. This actually hasn't been done. We want to do this to you, but we can't unless you give us permission. Here's the deal. If we do this surgery, there's a 97% chance you're going to die on the operating table. And we have to heavily sedate you. We know you don't want to be sedated, but this is the only way. There's a 3% chance you'll live. If you want the surgery, squeeze my hand three times. And he wouldn't even squeeze. They asked him over and over again. Then they say, okay, we want to ask you another question. You do understand that if you don't get the surgery, there's a 100% chance you're going to die, but you can die drug-free. Squeeze my hand three times. And he'd squeeze every time three times. So he knew what he was doing. He what knew a where warrior. He was going. Yeah. And they're like, all right. Then on the 18th day, he starts to flatline. He grabs, he's holding his beads. He's got a huge electric smile on his face. They're pumping his heart. The nurse is like, why the hell is this guy smiling? <laughs> and he leaves, leaves bliss out of his mind. And people go, isn't it painful talking about the story? It is and it isn't. I mean, I love my dad. It was very painful at the time, but I love my dad more than anyone could love somebody. And parents should teach you how to live, right? But I also think the most important thing anyone could ever show you on the face of the earth is how to properly die. And I feel like he showed me how to die. Wow. Um, so, you know, when it comes to meditation and chanting, it's so much more than getting equipoise, uh, stopping your thoughts, feeling content, feeling happy. It's becomes a true way of living and a way of thinking. It changes uh, the dialogue in your mind of what's important, what's not important. Um, because it makes God at the center of your life. Um, and the more you do it, the more you start to see. It's just like I said, the analogy of experiential knowledge. Like, you know, you played hockey. The guys who only played a couple times a week, were they ever as good as the guys who trained a lot? No. Never. Same thing with meditation. If you only do it a little bit, you're going to see a little bit. If you do it a lot, you're going to see a lot. It's the same principle. Life teaches us all these things through just observation you see it surfing hockey whatever it is the more you do it the better you get you know it's like you hear these basketball stories like oh you know kobe would do you know a thousand free throws all these guys would do these different things it's so true though yeah. you do it you get it yeah the more you do it the better you get at it yeah people act so act, act so shocked while people, why people are so good at what they are, but then you look at their habits and what they've done to get there. And it's usually, you know, it's way more than the average person, way more. They've put yeah. thousands of more hours than the average person. That's why they're there. It's not by accident. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's ignorant for people to think that someone can't be enlightened because they haven't experienced it. You see this a lot where people go, there can't be a God. There can't be these spiritual experiences. I haven't had it. I'm like, well, there's a lot of things we can't do that other people are doing. How many of us can free dive 100, 150 feet under the water? Mm. You know, even sports, how many people can, you know, do a thing at the highest level? You may not be able to do it now because you never put the work in, mm. you know, it's like for us to say that these experiences that people had, aren't valid because you haven't seen it is the same thing as sitting on the beach saying it's impossible to surf. Cause I don't know how to surf. 
You know, it's just a, a blanket statement we tend to make in our own life to stop ourselves from actually doing it. And it's like, um, there's a wonderful quote <laughs> that I love of Confucius because it cuts through all the bullshit. Um, my dad's spiritual teacher used to like tell people to read this quote because it was so important. Confucius said, one who wants to do something will find a way and one who doesn't will find an excuse. That's what we do in life. Oh, it couldn't have happened. So, oh, I couldn't have done it because this was happening in my life. That's why I said my dad had every excuse under the sun to grow up to be a shitty human being, right? But he didn't, right? Um, he could have been a drug addict, an abusive person, doing terrible, become a criminal. He had every excuse. He actually checked all the boxes for living a specific lifestyle, but he didn't want to live that lifestyle. He was fortunate enough to come in contact with yoga and all this different stuff that changed his narrative of his life. And it greatly impacted mine. I mean, that's, you know, people go, why are you on the path you're on now? I'm like, well, you know, there's definitely, you know, my own spiritual teacher is the reason I'm here, but my father definitely, I can't say he wasn't the most impactful person in my younger years that helped craft and mold the way I appreciate and look at things um, just from his own example. Um, and then because he really wasn't a fanatic in the things that he was following, for instance, he would say things like, you can't follow a yoga path just because I do it. You got to go out and do the work, go practice other spiritual practices, go read other books, go out there and find out for yourself. Don't just be a blind follower, someone who's a fanatic, someone with a lot of zeal, but very little knowledge. He goes, become knowledgeable. You know, you got to go out and do it. That's and, so important, man. That's such yeah. important advice. Yeah. And it's like, because a lot of parents will say, oh, just do what I'm doing. Just do this, do the family business. Just do, just follow what I'm doing. But instead he's like, go learn your own lessons. Go learn your own, what your truth is. Go figure it out first. Yeah. He's like, go figure it out and tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, now that I have kids and I'm live, you know, have yoga studios and writing books and doing these different things, it's like, I want to share it. You know, um, I was really little, I was probably seven or eight years old. And my dad stopped me in the hallway over the ashram and he looked at me and I was like, Hey dad. And he goes, I want to tell you something. If you don't share what you learned here, you're a thief. And then he walked away and I was little, I was really little, but it just stuck in my head so much. And I was like, I don't share what I've learned here. I'm a thief. What the hell? But it's so true. It's like, if you don't share what you learn in your life, you're just a thief. You're stealing and hoarding it. You know? Oh, that's so dude. That's so true. That's such a great point. It's something for people to think about too, right? Like, and I always felt called the same way. Like, as I learn, this is why I love the podcast because I can share this kind of stuff. Not only share mine, but yours. And and, and it's so true though, because somebody needs what you have, right? Somebody, somebody is one or two steps behind and that's all that you need to be ahead to help that person. And it's, yep. it's like a disservice to not share that. Absolutely. I think that's one of the reasons podcasts are so helpful books, everything, everything should be out there and accessible to all, you know, it, all these things are so useful to 
help somebody. You never know what's going on in someone's life right now that's listening to this, that they just needed one little something. You know, I did that heal summit and I had more people than I could even like respond to. It was like so many people going, oh my gosh, I was, I needed this so much. I just had someone die in my family. I just had this happen. I just experienced this. Oh, I needed this. I just went through a heartbreak. All these different things are going on. And that's the other thing that I feel is so bizarre in our modern culture right now is where everyone is in this mindset of hating and canceling people, uh, freaking out on people, but they have no idea what that person's going through. You have no idea that that person that you're talking to has just as complicated, complex life and situations happening that you do, maybe even more, and we know nothing about them, you know? I'm always like, once you get to know people before you are quick to judge them, you know, mm. and you, like you said before, like the Bible and all these different scriptures have such amazing sayings in them. Like I always love the saying of Jesus is don't look for the splinter in your brother's eye. You know, when you got like a telephone pole hanging out of your own, um, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he said. Yeah. <laughs> like Rose, like you got a blemish. <laughs> well, that's the problem I think with the world that we're living in right now. And you know, I just did a, a little solo episode on this the other day. And I just talked about how everybody is wasting their valuable energy pointing the finger at everybody else. Instead of just looking inward and just taking an assessment and reflecting on their own life and how they show up from how they get up in the morning. What do they do all day? What do they eat? Who do they speak to? What do they consume? All these things, being accountable for our own shit every single day. Imagine if everybody just did that. Imagine if everybody used all that energy of like trying to point the finger and cancel for people for speaking, saying something and judging. And we actually put that into our own selves every single day. You know, imagine the world we live in, man. Like that's the only way I can see this world healing itself is by everybody going within themselves and being accountable for themselves. Because the only way people around you are going to heal is if they, they get empowered by seeing what you do, not by you telling them. Like we can tell people how to act and yell at people and say what they're doing is wrong, but that, all that's going to do is push everybody away. If we take action ourselves and really do that ourselves, that inspires other people around us to want to do that. You know, and like that's the problem is like nobody is willing to just look at their own shit and really fucking understand that like, it's just, you know, all your shadow work, all your dark side. And this is something that I've had to work through is like, it's just as important. It's just as for me to develop love for myself and accountability for myself. I have to accept all of that shit because it's, if not, I'm denying part of myself, you know? And I think so many people are afraid to look at that stuff, afraid to just bring that stuff to the light and be accountable for their own shit. And it's like your, your past doesn't have to define who you are, but you got to, you got to look at it. You got to be accountable for it. We got to like, you know, really look at, put that energy into ourselves. And I, I really think that that's the problem where we're at right now in this world, man. It's like, everybody is just so worried about everybody else and canceling and somebody fucks up. That's it. They're, they're done. But we don't know their story. We don't know where they've been. We don't know like what the fuck they're going through, you know? And yeah. it's like, that's, it's the crazy chaos that we're in right now. Chaos, quarrel, and confusion. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. Uh, yeah, and I completely agree. I mean, I think that, you know, that's one of the things that 
you know, my dad would always look at it. He's like, I had to assess, am I going to repeat my mis- the mistakes that were given to me or do I change that dialogue? But the, one of the key pillars in the yoga system is something called svadhyaya, which means introspection. And that requires you looking at all your garbage. That requires looking at your bad habits and the things you need to change. Again, it's about, are you staying in the comfort zone? It's actually more comfortable for people to find faults in others than to look for the faults in themselves. Yeah. It's again, the same thing about finding the faults in others versus myself is staying in that coasting comfort zone. It doesn't require a lot of change. It actually requires no change of myself because I'm acting like I am already perfect. Mm. And it requires me forcing, asking other people to make the changes and not myself. And the whole thing about yoga is like, you're conditioned, you're covered. You have work that needs to be done. Unless you address this stuff, you're just going to be swimming in the same garbage as you've always been doing. So um, that's the other thing, you know, when I teach yoga teacher trainings, I just finished when I just got back from Costa Rica, I was there for three weeks and it's, Oh, no way. Yeah. It heavily addresses making changes in your own life. Mm. The whole thing. When I do yoga teacher trainings, we do asana, pranayama, anatomy, all that stuff. But I try to make it like we're living in an ashram together for three weeks. We get up at 6am. Everyone's like 6am get up at six. We start a day with meditation, chanting, prayer, reflection, like all this stuff that goes on philosophy talks. We also have a physical yoga practice, but it's this thing where I encourage people to actually start to peel back the layers and look at all the shit that they have to challenge their spiritual beliefs or to challenge if they have no spiritual beliefs, if, is there something more um, to face everything and go through the motions of life? Um, you know, and if, all I ask is people to have an open mind when they do it and to see what happens, you know, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. But that's the thing again about the yoga world that I find frustrating is everything is about, Oh, let's just, let's just try to keep everyone in their comfort zone. Actually the huge majority of the, of the yoga world is really into this whole cancel culture thing. And I, I think it's ridiculous. I think that we got to focus on helping people individually take accountability for themselves. That's the yoga process. If we're saying look, we're part of the yoga process, svadhyaya, start to make the changes yourself and you'll see the world change. Gandhi said change starts with one. And the only way change starts with one is if that person changes. <laughs> yeah. You know, that has always been the saying. That was the first saying, you know, when I started, you know, my spiritual or just my personal growth journey, you know, be the change you wish to see in the world. You know, yeah. that's, you know, that's, I mean, that's really, that's the thing. It's like, you know, be what you want to see out there, you know, like practice what you preach. Yeah. You know, and it's, 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 it's interesting because it's just so many people are just living out of fear and it's sad because they're just in a different awareness. They just don't have the awareness. They're just not conscious of what they're doing. And I guess like one of the last questions I want to ask you is how do you, how do you help somebody that is completely lost in the matrix, somebody that is clearly living out of fear and they're conscious they're just, they're allowing their lives to be dictated by the narrative of the mainstream media and all the nonsense going out. Like, how do you connect with somebody like that? How do you, how do you, you know, say somebody comes to you and asks you for advice? You know, what do you do? What do you say? Yeah. I mean, the hard part is it's the hard part and it's also a beautiful part. Everyone has free will. That's beauty but also because 
you can't help those who don't want to help themselves is a true thing as well. You know, I don't want to ever, a lot of people are really frustrated and angry, don't want to hear anyway. So I don't try to push anything on people. I'm like, if you don't want to hear it, I totally respect that. You know, people don't like some of the things I've said today on this podcast. You don't have to listen to it. Just turn it off. Right. If you don't like things that other people say, you don't have to do it. You know, you just like to walk out of a conversation, walk out of the conversation, you know, um, people ghost people on text all day long, ghost me. It's all good. I love you. Um, but at the end of the day, I always ask people, you know, reflect on that, reflect on why you feel this way. Reflect, is it making you uncomfortable for a reason or is it uncomfortable for no reason? Um, when you say that people are caught in the matrix of things, I have a, <laughs> in the yoga system, it says we're all spiritual beings having a material experience, not the other way around that we're a spiritual entity having this material experience and we're covered. We're under this amnesia of who we really are. And the spiritual practices of chanting and things like that will pull us out of our amnesia because we're putting a spiritual being in a familiar environment of spiritual practices. Just like when somebody has amnesia, they put them around family and friends and they're like, oh, I start to remember. Well, when you start to chant and get into spiritual activities, you're putting a soul in a soulful environment. So you start to pull yourself out of this amnesia. Mm. Um, We're all covered to different degrees. We all have our shit. Some of us have more shit. Some of us have less shit. There's a great allegory by a guy named Robert Nozick. He uh, has this analogy called the experience machine. So this allegory is, let's say there's a machine. It feels almost exactly like life. Like you couldn't tell that it's non-different than real life. When you're hooked up to this machine, you can have as much sex as you want, have as much money as you want, enjoy as much material things as you want, have as much material possessions, cars, everything you ever wanted, be super attractive, everything. Everyone's like, wow, that sounds pretty great. In order to be hooked up to the machine, though, you have to agree to be hooked up to it for the rest of your life. Would you do it? And most people say no, which was very startling. And people go, he would ask, why do you say no? And everyone says, because I would know in the back of my mind that it wasn't real life. Even though it feels real, I would know that it wasn't real. They say that's what this world is like. It's like an experience machine. It's real. It's happening but it's not a real home. It's not the ideal place for the soul. The soul is supposed to be in a spiritual realm. Um, but because we're in this place, we're like in the matrix, right? We think it's real. We think that this is our home. We think that we're this material body. We think material possessions are the most enjoyable thing ever. Even though we, we experience a lot of sadness and heartbreak and dissatisfaction, we still constantly buy into the narrative. Oh, buy more, eat more, have this, da, da, da hate more. It's going to make you happier to hate more people like on the news, hate more. You feel better. And it does. It makes people really shitty inside and they're more angry. It's not until we realize that we're in this experience machine, not until we realize that this is not our home, that we're a soul that we'll really ever find balance. We'll never find spiritual homeostasis. If we want spiritual homeostasis, we have to start engaging in meditating, praying, reading, but no one will hear this if they don't want to hear it. My example to people all the time is if somebody wanted to play hockey or learn how to play hockey, they'd start looking up hockey lessons, right? 
and they'd probably start seeing stuff everywhere. Oh, there's a hockey game. Well, if someone has no interest in hockey at all, would they look for hockey lessons? Would they notice it on a TV in a sports bar? Probably nothing because it's not in, doesn't interest them. That's not a focal point of their life. Same thing with spiritual life. Same thing with trying to get out of this matrix. If you're not looking for it, you're never going to find it. But as soon as you start looking for it, it's going to be signs everywhere. Oh, look, yoga. Oh, meditation. Oh, oh, you start seeing it everywhere, just like you would with anything else. But if somebody is so encased, it's very sad and very terrible. But if you're so encased in this box of, oh, I just let the news dictate my life. I'm full of hate. I'm still buying into this matrix idea. Spiritual life is just a bunch of phony quack stuff for pseudo spiritualists. There is none of this stuff. There's none of that. There's no God. There's none of this. You're not going to find it because you're not looking for it. Just like anything else. Mm. What are your thoughts on? Okay. So here's, here's what I've noticed in the spiritual community, you know, that I've been a part of and that I've noticed is that I've grown spiritually a little bit here and there. And, you know, I've done my plant medicine a little bit here and there, you know, ayahuasca, 5-MeO-DMT, Bufo. And for me, I have felt no need to go back because of the integration that I feel is necessary in the experiences. And that I have just found that there's a lot of people in seeking spiritual growth that almost get caught up in the spirituality, the word, and it becomes this like, almost this like narcissistic kind of world where people are like, it's almost like trading one thing, one addiction for like this new thing. And that like becomes chasing these answers that they, that they're seeking or like, they're like chasing this sort of weird and they're like creating this world in spirituality. It's like, it's, it's almost like this, uh, facade but it, now it's just spiritual you know and i've just noticed there's a lot of people out there that that it's become this it's kind of getting it, it's chaotic in itself at times mm. maybe that's me judging and i'm not judging anything but like where do you sit with that being somebody that grew up with this stuff it's in your dna and it's and it's really in your heart and you see the spiritual world kind of growing and you, and do you notice this kind of stuff out there? Like, does that kind of stuff come into your awareness around like people and stuff you see and maybe people yeah. just not really doing it for the right reasons or like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I think there's a lot to what you just said. I mean, even like um, psychedelic drugs or psychedelic plant medicine um, such as ayahuasca, you know, ibogaine, um, all these different things that people are taking, you know, magic mushrooms. Um, it's becomes like people psilocybin trips. All of these things have become very popular right now. You know, my dad did psychedelic drugs when he was uh, in the sixties. And he's like, man, it really, it really got me to see that I wasn't my body. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I took a bunch of um, peyote and I was standing in front of a mirror and my face kept changing. I had a a dog face, a hog face, a frog face, a human face, a black face, a white face, a female face, a male face, all these different changes of because I realized I've worn all these bodies in different lives. And I was just a soul that was going through all this stuff. Um, and he goes, but 
he had stopped taking psychedelic drugs after like age, what, 16, never did it again. And he's like, it was like this. It showed me that I wasn't my body, but it wasn't the answer. Um, it took me to a certain degree, but it wasn't the answer. What happens is, and I see this sometimes in the, in, in some of the new age spiritual things, everybody wants to go do ayahuasca and think that that's going to be the pinnacle of enlightenment. And they don't have to do an ayahuasca trip and they won't have to do anything else as self-work for the rest of their life. It's a quick fix, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when in the Vedic literature, it says it's a gradual process and it's continual process in order to uh, really work and uh, truly heal, right? So, my dad used to give an analogy because we'd have all these people come in from all over the world to stay with us in our yoga ashram. And people are like, oh, but I've been, I love psilocybin. I love this. And my dad's like, listen, I did all that stuff. And I'm, I'm happy it brought you here in this ashram. He goes, but imagine you're drowning in the ocean and a log comes by and you grab a hold of that log and it takes you to shore. Will you carry that log on your back for the rest of your life saying this log saved me or would you leave it on the beach? And everyone's like, I'd leave it on the beach. He goes, that's the psychedelic drugs. He goes, that's the plant medicine. He goes, it took me to the shore. But now that I'm on the shore, it's only going to be an impediment from here on out. I need to set it down. I need to move forward. He's like, because it showed me one thing. Show me I'm not my body. But in order for me to go even further, it can't be just dependent on this one substance. Um, it has its time and its place and its circumstance. Um, but it isn't founded upon that. You know, and I try to encourage people that, you know, in the Vedic literature, you can have cosmic, unexplainable, transcendental experiences independent of any plant medicine or any psycho psychoactive drug that's out there. It just depends on how sincerely and seriously you're endeavoring on the path. Yeah. Um, but it, when it comes to spiritual things, I feel like a lot of things in general are there to a lot of people are playing around with it as yeah, trendy and cool. But then again, that's the same difference of, are we trying to just be an armchair philosopher? Or are we trying to really be a, um, an experiential uh, seeker? Somebody who's really just diving in and I'm, I'm making this an actual lifestyle, like that idea of a yoga lifestyle. I got my aloe or my Lulu, my malas and my headband and my, my bag. That's not the yoga lifestyle. The yoga lifestyle, the word yoga means to yoke or unite with God. The word yogi means one who's on the path to connecting with God, one who's on the path to relinking with God. So a yoga lifestyle is everything that surrounds and drives you to relinking. So if I make every facet of my life a process of connecting with God, then I'm living a yoga lifestyle. Going to the yoga studio and wearing the right clothes and you know eating organic does not constitute or translate to living a yoga lifestyle a yoga lifestyle is one that is deeply rooted in connecting with god and then you're considered according to the vedas a yogi and i'm not making that up that's just in the bhagavad gita that's in you know pantajali's eight sutras we can go down the list of everywhere it defines really living a yoga lifestyle and it's all seated in that position um i think spirituality if people are on some kind of a path moving towards something higher it's still a great thing you should yeah still I, agree. I agree i think you have to do it you know you have to i mean if you're seeking to any degree that's a degree 
Mm-hmm. I'm not expecting ever to jump in head first anyway, even in my teacher trainings and things, I'm like, just start small, mm-hmm. meditate once a day on your beads, sit and meditate and reflect for this many minutes. I'm not saying, Oh, do this, 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 this. If you don't, you're, if you don't do it, you're screwed. It's like, well, how can I, how can I do something that I can actually follow through with? That's the biggest thing is we commit to too much and we, don't follow through, then we feel like we failed and then we fall off, right? I'm always follow, start with the smallest amount, follow through every day, then add a little more. Mm. Mm. Oh man, powerful stuff. Where, if we want to check you out, I want to learn more about your yoga, your yoga teacher training, man, because I've been feeling called to do that as well. And I think uh, Shanti initially had mentioned you because I talked to her about yoga teacher training. Then I don't know how that's how I think she ended up, you know, we end up talking about you and then we get it connected, but I would love to know more about your yoga teacher training and how can people connect with you, brother? Yeah. I mean, people can look for yoga teacher training stuff um, at yoga salt.com um, like table salt, yoga salt.com. Um, and, uh, you know, people can look up, I have a lot of online classes on Bodhi, that's B-O-D-H-I live, L-I-V-E.com. So BodhiLive.com. Um, and they can follow me Tamal Dodge on Instagram if they want to. Um, yeah, man. I mean, like I, I look at all these platforms and all these things as just great ways to try to share just like you're doing with your university of adversity, give the information or stealing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, what you're doing is great, man. And I think, you know, hearing your perspective on it, um, I really, I've never, you know, sat down and had a conversation with somebody that has, you know, been born into this from the day that they're, you know, born under this earth and having uh, a father that has such a story and got into the spirituality kind of thing and then had you and, it's, it's really interesting to hear that in the path because, you know, most people discover this later on in life. You know, a lot of people have to hit some sort of rock bottom for them to really, you know, discover this stuff. So yeah, it's cool to hear a perspective of somebody that's kind of had this stuff and embodied it from, from birth, you know? So yeah. I appreciate you coming on and sharing, man. Lots of value there. Yeah. You know, thank you for having me on, man. It's been great. I always love talking about it and until next time. Yeah. Thanks everybody. Thank you guys. Take care. Thanks everybody. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast, wherever you're watching this or listening to this. If you are on YouTube, hit that subscribe button, stay on top of the episodes. Let us know what you think in the comments. And if you are listening to this on audio, please subscribe to wherever you're listening whether it's Apple or Spotify, Apple is subscribe, Spotify is follow. I know you guys probably know this, but It helps to tell you it does matter if you subscribe to the podcast and we love you for it. Also, if you did get value from this, please share this with somebody that you need that you feel needs it. That's all that we ask is that you share this thing. I know this was a powerful episode with Tamal. So, you know, really think about who you could share this with. Tag us in social media if you got value. And um, if you guys feel called to do so, leave us a review on Apple. It's always greatly appreciated. The more subscribers, the more reviews, the more the show grows, the more people it gets in front of the more the YouTube channel grows, all that stuff. It's much appreciated. We love you guys. Appreciate all of you. We'll catch you next time.